And as uh, we get oriented, let's just ask the Lord to bless this time one more time this evening. Our Father, we're so thankful for your goodness to us, and we pray that this opportunity that we have to look into your word would be um, instructive, encouraging, convicting, and that the Spirit of God would work in our hearts through your word. And I pray these things in your precious Son's name. Amen. It is an awfully sensational start to the church, isn't it, in Acts so far? I kind of mentioned that briefly last week. And many people may look at the somewhat sensational start to the church and say, well, that's, that's so big, that's so huge. Things like that don't happen today. It's really not too applicable for us here at Grace Church of Menor in 2018. And I'd like to propose that on the contrary tonight, in Acts chapter 4, we have an event that, while it may be sensational, like most of Acts has been so far, is encouraging because it really does give us insight into what God is trying to teach his people and how God is trying to use his people, not only in the past, at the beginning of the church, but today for his people at Grace Church of Menor. And so those really big sensational moments tend to have really big sensational points, right? The point is a little easier to get across when the stakes are a little higher. So I think God uses that oftentimes in Scripture to be instructive to us that he wants to get the same big point across, and sometimes the only time we'll stop and listen is when we say, wow, that's huge. Wow, that's big. Wow, that's really a David and Goliath moment. And so we all remember the story of David and Goliath, and that's a big moment. And so the early church is facing Goliath after Goliath through the working of the Holy Spirit. And really, God is trying to encourage and instruct us even today. As we consider Acts chapter 4, we see the David and Goliath moment of the threatening of the gospel. Now, I want to, before we dive in, this is the same council, the same group, the Sanhedrin, the same religious leaders that just a few weeks ago in our time frame here at the start of the church, a few weeks ago, short few weeks, tried, crucified, and put to death their Lord, our Lord, Jesus Christ. So make no mistake about it, then when, when Peter and John, and I know we don't have the context yet here, but we, we will, when Peter and John face this group of religious leaders, it is this very same group at the very same place that tried and then ultimately crucified their Lord. And so this is a David and Goliath moment of threatening the gospel. And by the way, Acts wants to get across the point that God had a plan for that. And he had a purpose for that. And so here we find ourselves in the very same situation in Acts chapter 4. And if you were here last week, and if you weren't, Either way, it's always helpful to review and kind of catch up the context. Remember, Peter and John are going up to the temple, 
and they encounter at the temple, by the way, they were going at the time of prayer, about three in the afternoon, because they were really interested in not necessarily going to the temple as devout Jews. The church had already started at this point. They were really interested in proclaiming the gospel. They were just obeying Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, going to uh, uh, Jerusalem, then Judea. You'll be my witnesses, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts. And so they were obeying Acts chapter 1, verse 8. They were going up to the temple, and a lame man catches their eye, remember? And, and he just shouts out, as he does to everyone passing by, you know, please help, uh, some money, some food. And the lame man reaches out his hand, expecting money, and Peter grabs him, lurches him forward, and says, in the name of Jesus Christ, right, stand up and walk. And so we kind of see Peter and John and this lame man walking into the temple, and everyone's amazed and astounded. And Peter gives a little mini-sermon there, and many people except Jesus Christ. And that's where really we pick up in Acts chapter 4 and verse 1. As they were speaking to the people, that's Peter, John, the lame man to his side, to their side, the priests and the captains of the temple guard and the Sadducees, again, all these people, all these groups, were all at the trial of Jesus Christ, came up to them. Now who are these people? The priests, the captains, the temple guard, well, these merely are just the religious leaders of the temple. The priests, obviously, they kept the sacrifices and, and really ran uh, the, the, the religious part of the temple. The captain of the temple guard, he was really the second in command of the temple. He was also over the, we could say it this way, the security forces, though he wasn't necessarily, that wasn't his primary role. He was second in command of the temple uh, after the high priest. And he was... In, in charge of the security guards as well, if you will, of the temple. And the Sadducees, we understand the Sadducees is, a, is not really a, a formal group that held office but in the temple, just like the Pharisees, but they were among the priests and they were among, maybe even here, the temple guard. They were a religious party, just like the Pharisees. And so... Some of the priests were Sadducees, some of the priests were Pharisees, and they had a specific set of teaching, which, by the way, right, they denied what? They were sad, you see, right? We all learned that because they denied the resurrection and, and really the ultimate uh, reality or, or, or fate and afterlife. And, and so they were, uh, they were literal, literalists of the law. They rejected the, the Talmud. They rejected the oral traditions, the things that Pastor was talking about this morning. They really rejected those things, and they really held to the, to the Mosaic law in its written form and um, obviously denied the resurrection. And so we see in this setting, and by the way, we're going we're gonna to kind of walk through the setting a little bit, and then we're going to we're going to kind of set up the outline for you. So don't, don't get too lost here, but I just want to give us some, some facts about the David and Goliath situation that we find ourselves in. We see here in Acts chapter 4, the setting, the temple, pre, uh, the priests, the temple guard, the Sadducees, all these people have a, um, have a religious reason why they don't like Jesus Christ taking fame here, especially the Sadducees. They are threatened by Jesus Christ's belief. And that's interesting because we'll see later on that they cannot deny 
what happened to the lame man. In fact, in verse 22, we see that the lame man has been sitting around the temple probably for most of his adult life, and he was over 40 years old. And so it, it, it's, it's, it's not a sham, as I said last week. It's not a guy getting out of the van and, and forgetting to you know, put on the handicap sticker and then three steps down the parking lot starting to, uh, oh, yeah, I got a, I got a you know, limp. Right? That's, not, that's, not what hap- that's, not, is, that's not what is happening here. And so we see that the religious leaders, it's interesting, giving pastor's sermon this morning, are, are threatened those at the very top of the structure see the problem between what they have set up and between what Jesus Christ stands for. Verse 2, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus. So right away, the Sadducees have a problem with in Jesus, the resurrection from the dead. And so I don't think it's an accident that Uh, Luke here brings up the reality that the Sadducees have really are the ones who are stirring the problem. And they, that the temple guard, the Sadducees, the priests, they laid hands on them and put them, that's Peter and John, and probably the lame man in jail, the once lame man, in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. So, Three o'clock, Peter, John go up to the temple, uh, grab the lame man. The layman starts walking and leaping and praising God. And they're preaching from three probably till about six o'clock. And at this time, we'll see here in a little bit, verse four really, at this time many of those who had heard the gospel believed. And the number of the men came to about 5,000. Now some question, is this an additional 5,000 to those in Pentecost? The wording really here is not necessarily uh, clear. So what we do know is that 5,000 people since the beginning of the church, 5,000 men since the beginning of the church are saved. It's quite a, quite a thing. Whether it was 3,000 plus 2,000 men, or whether, it doesn't really matter. The point is clear, isn't it? That God is working through the Holy Spirit and people are getting saved and and so you know it 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 probably took Peter and John and whoever was there with them it probably took them a while to to lead 5000 people to Christ and so or or 3000 at the or 2000 at the very least and and so by this time it's evening and uh the Sadducees the, the way that they you know they just kind of kind of like the senate you know, the United States Senate. They can't get anything done. They just go home and they'll come back tomorrow. It's kind of a nice job, you know, just security kind of thing. Some of our jobs don't work like that. Some of you, you work until the job's done and then you go home. Not here. And that's an unfortunate thing for Peter and John and the lame man. Uh, but, but they go home. Uh, the Sadducees come back uh, for another day and leave them in jail. And look at verse 5. On the next day, their rulers, elders, and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem. And Annas the high priest was there, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of high priestly descent. Well, if if you know a little bit of of kind of the timeline in, in Jewish history, you may say, well... Caiaphas really was the high priest. Annas was the high priest before Caiaphas. Um, Annas was 
high priest for about nine years, Caiaphas, I believe, double that, 18 years or so. And what, what is reality is, is Caiaphas is the son-in-law of Annas. Annas is, obviously has still a pretty influential role. And so Luke records him as the high priest. He's still kind of regarded as, as, as one of the chief uh, people in, in the Jewish realm, in the Sanhedrin, uh, the body there. And Caiaphas was the high priest. And John and Alexander, most likely in the text here, are just part of that family line. That's really what I think Luke is saying, and all who were of high priestly descent. And so, really, those who have claimed, not by Levitical right, but those who have claimed being high priest now are, are gathered together. So the stakes are, are there, right? The Sadducees go home for the evening, and they come back with the high priest. In verse 7, uh, when they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire, by what power or in what name have you done this? In verse 8, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man. So notice, being filled with the Holy Spirit, Peter doesn't go out and lurch and hang the Jewish leaders. You see, I think, I think there's, and as we kind of progress through, I think we'll see certainly at the end that the Holy Spirit boldness that is given to the early church is not, is not in your face, abrupt, nasty gospel preaching. It's wise, sincere invitation to the Lord Jesus Christ. And even here, I just want to pause and stop for a second to consider that, because Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, you guys are all going to hell. No. He says, rulers, he addresses them politely, sincerely. He says, if we're on trial today for being kind which, by the way, was an admirable thing, whether it was in the written law or in the oral law of the Jews. It was an admirable thing to be kind. And so he says, if we're on trial today to be kind to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, this goes back to chapter 3, verse 16, the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. Why are you mad at us for being kind? And he throws in the gospel, right? Not as, uh, oh, by the way, certainly that's, that's the primary argument here, but, but so it's even instructive for us to see that the, the Jewish leaders have a problem, and Peter and John are trying to answer their problem and they say, this is really the real answer. And look at, uh, this is really the real problem that, that you have as, as, as those uh, in the temple. He says in verse 11, He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. That is the real problem. As if the builders... Are you, you Jewish leaders, and Jesus is the stone, and you've rejected him, and you've cast him aside when really other builders come along and 
They make him the foundation stone. And on him, everything else is very much built on. You know, Jesus actually, a few weeks, give or take, before, quote, the same psalm to the same group of people in Luke chapter 20. And he gives them a parable first. Remember that parable? The parable of the vineyard owner? And the vineyard owner sends his servants to his vineyard, and what happens to those servants? Some of them get kicked out, some of them get beat up, and they get returned back to the owner because they don't want anything to do with the vineyard owner. And so what does the vineyard owner do? He sends his son. And instead of seeing the authority and the place that this man has over the vineyard, they say, ah, he's the heir. If we take him out, what? It's it. We got, we're good. And so they kill the vineyard's son. And Jesus gives that parable, and then he quotes Psalm 118 here, and he says, and he's look, he looks at the temple, and he says, you see these stones? You've rejected the stone, and yet all the stones that you're building, pictured, right, in the great temple, all the stones that you're building, not one of them, not one will remain standing. And so really, what hits, what ought to hit the group, the, 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 the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, the high priests, all those that are gathered around and hearing Peter and John's testimony and their quoting of this verse ought to go back to what Jesus says and say, you're going to be standing in judgment. It's ultimately what Peter and John would, or, or what this psalm would be saying to them because of what Jesus said. Does that make sense? And so Peter applies Jesus as the stone to them, and they are the builders. Oh, and by the way, remember the judgment that Jesus himself had for those builders. But, you know, G Peter and John, they don't stop there with their defense of the gospel. And it's a beautiful picture of God's mercy and God's enduring grace and his desire to see all men, as we're learning in Romans, come to the Lord Jesus Christ and to be saved. Because look at verse 12. Instead of stopping with the judgment in verse 11, Peter says, and there's salvation, my friends, in no one else. Remember, as Pastor said this morning, right, this was Peter and John, this, this was their family, this was the people that they belonged to. Just like you and I have family that we belong to. And so, sure, we say truth as truth is in love, but the love is always there is salvation in no one else. Verse 12, for there is no other name under heaven that must be given among men whereby we can be saved. And so, in verse 13, uh, they observe the confidence of Peter and John, and they understand that they were uneducated and untrained men. And that doesn't mean that they were stupid men, but this, I think, is very instructive that when you follow the Lord Jesus Christ, you may not have a, a 
Sadducee degree or a Pharisee degree, or you may not be in the line of the high priest, or today you may not have a PhD, but my friends, when you align yourself with truth, I'm going to go back to my summer days with Grace Bible Day Camp. Are you ready? God always wins. It's that simple. And so they're amazed. Why are they? Because God always wins. And they began to recognize that they have been with Jesus in verse 14. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. The man, 40 years more, lame, leaping, walking, praising God. And their defense is silence. Friends, sometimes all we have to do is just give the gospel. And, and, and the conversation may end, but don't misunderstand that that's not your fault. That's just silence. Because they stand before the holy God himself. And they have nothing to say. Look at verse 15. But when they had ordered them to leave the council, they began to confer with one another. So they kind of shoo them out and they got to really figure out what to do. Got problems. We haven't said a thing. What shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all. And isn't this beautiful that Luke really can, probably through the testimony of maybe some who got saved, records this? The inner workings of the man who rejects Jesus Christ, they know they're wrong, and yet, what do they do? They, they just try to, well, we can't deny it, so we're going to try to just redirect it. Verse 17, but so that it will not spread any further among them, let us warn them to not speak any longer. And so that's their solution to this problem. Don't speak. So when they summoned them, they came, commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus but Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. Again, going back to the understanding of the law, whether it be oral tradition or the law, written law itself, it was very clear who was in the top, at the top of the authority structure, in any authority structure. And that was God himself. And so Peter and John and the layman, they kind of, they go back to the, the reality of the authority structure that God had set up. And they say, well, you don't want us to speak, but whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you or to God, you let me know. And the obvious answer, according to the law, is it's not right in the sight of God to obey man at the expense of obeying God. And uh, we certainly can take application of that today, whether at work, at school, proclaiming the gospel in love never means that we do not proclaim the gospel. We may have to do it in certain ways that honor God, but it does not mean not to proclaim the gospel. And so I think that's very instructive for us here in this time. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. And when they had threatened them that further, they let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them. 
on account of the people because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. Verse 22, for the man was more than 40 years old whom this miracle of healing had been performed. So that's the situation. Quite a sensational situation, isn't it? It's a David and Goliath moment for sure. All right, so now we're ready to start the sermon. I promise I won't start, won't be that long tonight. But I want us to understand that in the midst of this situation, that we are told that faithful witnesses are to have a spiritual perspective in an increasing threat to the gospel. And my friends, make no, make, no, make no mistake about it that there is, the Bible speaks of, Paul does, Peter does, James does. They all speak of the reality that the threat of the gospel will grow daily. And Hebrews tells us that that is a reality and so we should do something about that threat. We'll look at that here in a little bit. And so what's the spiritual perspective that I think God is asking us to have through Luke, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, understanding this David and Goliath moment where you have Peter and John standing before the Jewish leaders after an amazing miracle where, where after 40 years of not being able, he had to be carried up the steps every day of his life so he could survive. Remember Acts chapter 3? And after 40 years, he is leaping like a deer. Going back to Isaiah. Leaping like a deer. That's pretty sensational. That's pretty David and Goliath, isn't it? And God wants us to not miss the point. Sometimes we get so wrapped up in those, those details. They're sensational. But he doesn't want us to miss the point that we, should, we ought to have a spiritual perspective in the threat of this increasing gospel threat, in the wake of this increasing gospel threat. And so we have, my friends, the spiritual perspective of fellowship and prayer. You and I, in incre an increasing threat of gospel in our environment, are two pray and fellowship with the believer. A spiritual perspective requires fellowship and prayer with other believers, with, here, in the context, the church. Look at verse 23 with me. When they had been released, they went to their own. Where's the first place that the first leaders, the apostles, went to? They went back to their own. They went to the church. I mean, there's so many places for us to go with technology, isn't there? But my friends, don't lose heart. Don't lose focus. Don't lose perspective. They went back to their own. And what did they do? They reported all that the chief... So, okay, guys, gather around. This is what happened. We weren't just in jail. All right, that's how I would say it. That's probably, they weren't probably that excited. I've never been in jail. I guess that's a good thing. Right? And when they had heard this, what did they do? They lifted up their voices to God with one accord. So they, they gathered together. They fellowshiped with each other. Let's not lose focus of this fellowship. Go back with me uh, to Acts chapter 2 and verse 44. Look at, the, look at the quality of their fellowship. Remember, 
this is not just an aside for the church, but this is instructed to say just how unified this church was. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began to sell their property and possessions and were sharing with them all as anyone might have need. Remember we mentioned last week that, that God didn't want to give the lame man money because he didn't have, because Peter and John didn't have money. If, if, the, if God wanted the lame man to have money, Peter and John would have had money in their pockets. But Peter and John said, we don't have any money, but what we do have is Jesus Christ. Amen. And so the whole point of the early church was to provide for each other's needs so that they could focus themselves uniquely on the spiritual realities. So they could grow each other and then do the Acts 1-8 outline of the Great Commission to share the gospel. And so they sold all their property and they, they shared among themselves so that there wouldn't be a physical need among them so that they could work on the spiritual needs. Day by day, continuing with one another in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, taking meals together, praising God, having favor with all people. And the Lord was adding to their number daily. Now look, at the end of our passage here in Acts chapter 4 and verse 32. Same thing, in the congregation, this is 4.32, in the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonged to him was his own, but all things were in common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And abundance grace was upon them all. For there was a needy person among them. For all who were owners of land houses would sell, and bring possessions and sales. And they laid at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as they had need. There was a unique and undeniable fellowship of this church. And so that is instructive for us tonight that in the wake of threat to the gospel, we maintain our fellowship as believers. That's, that's our first run. And what do they do in their first run? What is their first priority in the, mid, in the, in the wake of... It's not a strategy session. It's not numbering how in the world they're going to they're gonna counter the demands of the Sanhedrin. What do they do? <laughs> Uh, isn't this just simple? Isn't this just beautiful? Isn't this just where we need to be so much more? They pray. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord, and they said, Oh, Lord, you know what's beautiful about this prayer? And this is our second point. Spiritual perspective not only requires the fellowship and prayer of the church, but it starts with the God of heaven as sovereign king, as sovereign here, creator. Spiritual perspective starts with, a, with, a, uh, with God as sovereign creator. So they pray and they lift up their voices and they say, O oh Lord, master, owner, possessor, possessor of everything, that's pates, literally where we get our word despot from. That's kind of a negative term in our English grammar. It, however, is the reality that God is sovereign over everything. He is master over everything. Socially, 
This was used, they would call each other Lord because they were Lord of their own households. And within the household, they were the head. And they ruled unconditionally, those family members. This was a master in direct contrast to look at verse 29. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants, doulos is the Greek word there, the direct contrast to the slave. This is God, the master. And Peter and John and the fellowship of the believers, the church, they recognize that they are the slaves. And so they cry out to God as sovereign. And they say, God, sovereign, <laughs> what, where's the best, where, where's, there's no better place to start for someone who's sovereign than what? You've created everything, right? Oh, sovereign Lord, it is you who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. What better way to state the absolute sovereignness of God than to say he is the creator? And so he is the creator. It's very interesting. Verse 25, who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, your servant said, why did the Gentiles rage? So he's the creator of the Gentiles. He's the creator of the peoples devising futile things. This is Psalm 2. The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. And you know what's interesting? There's a fundamental definition change that Peter and John do here and the apostles in the church. Up until now, when we read Psalm chapter 2 and we see why do the Gentiles rage, the Jewish people are looking at the landscape of everybody who's not Jewish and they say, why are they against us and against you, O oh God? There's a fundamental change, however. The definition now changes from someone who's not a Jew as a Gentile to someone who's not in Jesus Christ. It's a fundamental change. In fact, the Jews are now, the Jews who rejected Jesus, the very Sanhedrin, the very Sadducees, the very Pharisees, the priests, the temple guard, the high priests, all those who rejected Jesus, they are now numbered among the Gentiles. Not in descent, certainly, but in reality of them being against Jesus Christ, against the Lord, and against his Christ. So a fundamental uh, definition change, if you will, to any person outside and against the Lord Jesus Christ. So we've seen that spiritual perspective requires fellowship and prayer. It requires us starting with God as sovereign. And I came across something the other day that I just thought I'd share to kind of maybe illustrate those two points as a, as a neat perspective for you and for me. Are you guys familiar with riptides? Riptides are things, they can actually happen in Lake Erie. Um, but riptides are, thing, are, are basically rivers that, that as the waves crash onto the shore, usually in the ocean, the, the water kind of forms an underground river and can take people out, even very strong swimmers, out to sea and people drown in riptides. Well, last July, Roberta Ursley, I don't know her, but I hope maybe someone in here does, 
and her family were at Panama City Beach, Florida. And her two sons were out kind of, uh, you know, offshore playing around. It's July. Who doesn't want to be in the ocean unless they're sharks, which by the way, the story has nothing to do with sharks, so it's okay. Um, and the boy started to scream, and she realized, oh, they're really starting to get pretty far away from the shore. They're screaming, oh, that's not good. So her and her husband and a few other relatives, they swam to go help the boys. Unbeknownst to them, they were now stuck in the same riptide or rip current. And they were trapped. And now there were a total of nine people in this rip current. And you can't miss nine people on a crowded Panama Beach City, uh, Panama, Florida, whatever it is, Panama City Beach uh, in July. And so people started to say, oh, what should we do? What should we do? We can't go out there. We can't swim. We'll get stuck like them. We can't just let them drown. What should we do? And so there was one man who had this genius idea. Why don't we form a human chain? There were plenty of people to do it. And so they formed an over football length, football field length, human chain. And obviously the anchors of the chain were bigger and they were, they were on or could stand in the water on the shore as, as it were. And the chain extended out to the point where everyone was stuck. And so they, they got there and they got the, the children and they passed them up the chain and then, they, then everyone else started going up the chain as well. And all nine were saved that day. And I want you to think about that for a second. You know, when gospel threats come, when things happen, there are rip currents, there are rip tides that are strong. And you and I, left to ourselves, we may drown if we don't do things God's way. But God is sovereign. He's the unmovable shore. And you and I, together as God's people can go out and do God's will in God's way. But we need each other to do that, even as God is sovereign. And I think that's the point here that we have. The spiritual perspective requires fellowship and the prayer of the church, and it, it starts with the sovereign creator. God's sovereignty is exactly how the new church coped with the trial, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus Christ. And it will be the pillar now for every gospel threat to ever assail her. And so what are we to do? Well, there's nothing left but to trust in God's sovereign plan. Look at verse 27. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And so we have an interesting reality about God's sovereign plan. We're reminded that it is Jesus, God's servant, that is the anointed one. The anointed one. And for a great definition of the anointed Jesus, we go back to Psalm chapter 2 and verses 25 and 26. 
And we see that the Gentiles raged, the peoples devised futile things, the kings of the earth took their stand, the ruler stand, the rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. Psalm 2 in the Hebrew, against his anointed one. What is that anointed one? Well, if we go to, you don't have to turn there, but in Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. David says this, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Now we're pointing to Jesus. Today I have begotten you. That word begotten is the same, is, is linked to how John uses it in John chapter 1, monogenes, the only begotten of the Father. So what is this, what is this quality of this, this begotten one? What does it mean that Jesus is the only begotten? He is the unique. He is the one of a kind. And not only is he unique, and not only is he a one of a kind, but he is the sole descendant that has the very nature, the very deity of who God is, the very inheritance, the very authority, the very power. He's the only one. Not David, not Abraham. It is Jesus and Jesus alone. He is God's servant and he is the anointed one. That's significant as we trust in God's sovereign plan. The threat has always been and will always be against Jesus, God's anointed. It was that way ever since Genesis 3.15. And you who follow Jesus ought not, should not be surprised when the threat is the reality we will suffer for his name's sake. And so we should trust in God's sovereign plan. That God gave up his servant, his anointed his soul heir. And that plan requires just the transparency that God, your hand can do whatever it wants to do, verse 28. You fashioned the earth with your hand. You led a stubborn and stiff-necked people out of Egypt with your hand. And you still let them turn from you. And Hebrews tells us that it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so, you and I, we must trust in God's sovereign plan. His anointed one, his hand, his purpose. Your purpose is predestined to occur. You know, he, we, we, we studied through Romans 9, or Romans 8, so we can't just bypass the reality of what we've been predestined to predestined to to conforming to his son to being called in Ephesians chapter 1 to being adopted to being inherited in the face of threats to the gospel and the church they didn't seek to become political activists they didn't they didn't seek to kind of take this social gospel thing let I me mean, look at how well it worked with healing the lame man Right? I mean, you want to get people to follow you. There's one way to do it. Let's go around healing people. We know that that can't be because God's the one who heals, not Peter or John. Peter said that himself. And they simply gathered and they prayed and they trusted in God the sovereign. 
spiritual perspective in the light of threats of the gospel is not only a reality that we should gather together and fellowship and prayer. It's not a reality that God is sovereign and that we should trust in his sovereign plan. He does have one and it did involve Jesus Christ and it does involve us and it does involve, we're told, the threat of the gospel. But also it's a spiritual perspective to proclaim God's word. Through it all, we have one mission. It hasn't deviated from Matthew chapter 28 or Acts chapter 1 verse 8. It is to proclaim the gospel. That's our perspective. That ought to be our perspective in any trial. Our, pers- our perspective in any threat. That's why you and I exist. That's why we're saved. That's why we're called children of God and we have an inheritance with him. So it shouldn't surprise us. And so in verse 30, uh, excuse me, 29, their prayer says, And now, Lord, take note of their threats. You know what you do with a sovereign king, a sovereign creator, a sovereign ruler, and he has a plan? Lord, can you just take note? Can you, can, you, can you kind of take notes? It's kind of an interesting thought, isn't it, on what's going on? And however you work it out, whatever you do, you're sovereign, and I trust you. And help me, in the midst of all that, to be the faithful steward of proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Your, you take note and grant that your bondservant may speak. Again, going back up to the reality that God is master, he is sovereign, and we are the slaves. Not merely a servant, some translate, it is a, it is a slavery, it is bound to God being our owner. In the reality that you and I exist for the sole purpose of serving the master. Matt Albright, I don't know if he's here tonight, but he shared, a, uh, he shared something in youth group. So when he shares in youth group, I figure I can share it publicly here. But he texted me on Tuesday or Wednesday morning. He said, Pastor Steve, the Lord just really hit me with something. Uh, I learned something last night, and I really, really am just burned for five minutes to to share uh, how the Lord taught me. It was real humble how the Lord taught me. And I said, sure, Matt, whatever you need. You take the time and I'll just do whatever. Don't worry about it. So Matt shared with me how the Lord burdened him on something. And he shared it with the youth group. And he said, you know, I've been working on this video project for about a year. And it has to do with, you know, he's a very gifted, I don't know if you've seen, he actually made the, the fountain tree out here in the courtyard out of copper and stuff. Matt, Matt's real gifted. And, um, and he did some stuff for the, the school shooting in Chardon, uh, uh, the memorial out there. And, um, and so he had another opportunity to do some more stuff for, for the community and, and really hopefully have a, a presence in the community that way, ultimately for the gospel's sake. That's Matt's heart. And, and he said, I've been working on this project, and it has something to do with his, his, his artistic influence uh, for the community. And he's been intern, uh, there's this intern that's been working with him for over a year. His name is Ryan. And the last time they got together was about six months ago, and they've been coordinating. And they finally got together for uh, four hours late on Tuesday night. They met at like 10 o'clock in the evening. And they, were, they had, or uh, 8 o'clock in the evening, and they had till 12 
to get this project done. And then they were both going to go their separate ways and hopefully be done with the project. And so Matt and Ryan start working on this video, and they're about halfway done. And it crashes. Their, their software crashes on, on Ryan's computer. <laughs> and they look at each other, and it's, you know, it's, it's 10 o'clock, it's late. They say, all right, well, we'll pick back up, and we'll try again. And so they do it. They get till about, they work a little longer than they wanted to, and I think until about 2 in the morning, and they hit save. And it crashes again. And at this point, they're exhausted. They probably don't want to speak to each other. They probably don't want to speak at all. And so they just want to go their separate ways. And they say, well, we'll just get together another time and figure this out. And so Matt gets in his truck, and he just starts talking to the Lord. And he says, and he's real transparent. He says, you know, Father, I was, I was just, you know, I'm away from my family tonight. I'm here till 2. What's going on? And you can imagine how that would, you know, and just, God, you're sovereign, you're creator, <laughs> this isn't fun. Why are you doing this? And he said, as soon as he said, why are you doing this, it hit him. I think he said it was the, really the Holy Spirit convicting him that the whole reason why he was there tonight was this was going to be the last time that he was going to work with Ryan, and he never shared the gospel with him. I thought, wow. That's the spiritual perspective that we ought to have. And so he's driving on his truck, and while it's painful, and while it hurts that it's 2 in the morning and they have no project to show for it, he takes comfort in the reality that God is going to give him, hopefully, another chance to get with Ryan. And you better believe, Matt said, what I'm going to do after or during or whenever, but before I leave with Ryan, I'm going to share the gospel with him. That's a bond servant, my friend. That's the whole point. Right? Isn't it? Isn't that the point of why we interact with our neighbors? Isn't that the point of why we have family? Isn't that the point of why we go out and do what we do? And so it's a spiritual perspective that a bond servant has when God is your master. The sovereign creator puts you in specific situations and they are always unto the furtherance of the gospel. That's a spiritual perspective. So take note of your threats and grant that you're bond servants and oh, how we all need to be more bond servant-like, don't we? May speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal. And signs and wonders take place through your holy servant, Jesus. So your bond servants, us, were to speak your words with all confidence. So we're, our spiritual perspective is to proclaim God's word. And I just want to take a moment to close to look at the, the reality here that I think the Holy Spirit is trying to get across to us about proclaiming God's word. If you've, you've noticed, maybe throughout as we've read, that there are several times that Luke uses the word confidence or boldness throughout. And you can understand, right? I mean, this is a David and Goliath moment. Peter and John, they're standing, beho they, they're standing beho before the group of men that, that put on trial Jesus Christ and ultimately delivered him over to be crucified. 
That's a pretty intimidating thing to be standing for the same faith, is it not? You can see why you know, boldness is one of the big ideas of this passage. But can I suggest to you that asking for boldness to speak the word of God is vastly different than speaking the word of God with boldness? You get that? It is vastly different. I'm, it's not, I'm asking God to give me courage to give someone a tract or to bring up the gospel to someone. That's not the boldness. That's not the confidence that's being uh, uh, described and encouraged here. No, rather, it is to speak the word of God with boldness, with confidence. This isn't just a track drop, and it's certainly not street preaching. It's not what that necess- that's not what it means. This really does argue for getting to know the people around us. That's boldness, isn't it? Actually knowing who you're talking to. As one, as Harry Dodd has recently shared, that pastor encouraged him a long time ago as he, he moved into his neighborhood to walk the neighborhood and pray for God to give an increase in that neighborhood. Pray for God to give, to give confidence and boldness and opportunity to share with boldness the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is proclaim the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit and in, in, the, in the praying manner, in the not grieve, my life is not grieving the Holy Spirit manner. My life is expectant manner. My life is a trusting, living in a trusting manner. Asking for boldness to speak the word of God is very different than speaking the word of God with boldness. Look at verse 8 with me. Good saint. Just had a loading problem. Sorry about that. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people. And remember how he is filled with the Holy Spirit. He doesn't go on a street preaching rant and condemn them all to hell. That's not boldness. But he loves them. He knows them. They are his Jewish heritage. And he appeals to them on what they know. And doesn't our culture know something about the Bible? Most of the time they do. Most of our religious friends know stuff of the Bible. So we can appeal to them based on what they know. Here he appeals to them on the, on the reality that it is good to be kind and that they heal the kind beggar. Verse 13 the Jewish leaders observed the confidence, the boldness of Peter and John. Why? Because they were with Jesus Christ. Boldness requires us to know the word of God, doesn't it? They were with Jesus. They had the ultimate word. They had the ultimate instructor, the teacher. And so for you and for me, we, we want to pray to be bold in our speech. What does that mean? That means that we know the Bible. We don't have to know it like Pastor Tim knows it and he knows the Bible I sit there and he'll quote off verses to me I'm like okay okay I better write those down right he has his chapter content memorized I did at one point for my test and unfortunately a lot of mine kind of went by the wayside and I need to pick it back up so that's a confession of a young preacher right 
But we don't have to know the Bible like someone else does. We just have to know the Bible and the Holy Spirit will do the work. Amen. Isn't that his role anyway? So just know your Bible. Just know your Bible. And you can be bold and confident in what little Bible you know the Lord will use through the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 29, right? And your word with all confidence. There it is again. Comes back up. And then verse 31. The sure sign for a sensational close right? to a pretty sensational historical story. What does boldness look like? And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. They were so bold, the Holy Spirit wanted to make sure that they knew that they had the confidence that the very ground that they were on was shaken. Can I submit to you tonight as we close that we do not have any less of the Holy Spirit than they did? And he hasn't changed the last time I looked at my Bible. And so for you and for me, while he may not shake the very ground that we're on, my friends, how is your maintenance of the Holy Spirit in your life? You know what I mean by that? Galatians 5.22, right? fruit of the Spirit. How are you producing the fruit? Or really what should be said is how is the Spirit producing the fruit in you, isn't it? But we can get in the way though, can't we? And we can grieve the Holy Spirit. And so as we close, spiritual perspective always requires the proclamation of the gospel. And we see here in a very clear way that we are to speak with boldness. And boldness doesn't necessarily mean what we think it does. But it's with the power of the Spirit and expecting Him to work. And so, as I wash this text through my own heart, Lord, make me the man that I should be in the Spirit of God. Help me produce the fruit of the Spirit so that I might, with great boldness, proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. And may He give the increase in His good, sovereign plan. Father, tonight I pray that you would help us to Just be emboldened through the Spirit to grow and to learn of you through the Word. That we would be the men and women that you have called us to be as bondservants. That we would see the singular purpose of our calling, of our title, of our salvation. And there's no less than what the Lord Jesus Christ and all those who faithful have gone since have modeled to proclaim the great news of the gospel. And so, Lord, give us wisdom as we seek to take the outline of the gospel proclamation in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 and, and to really replicate in our Jerusalem, in our Judea, in our Samaria, and to our uttermost parts how to be bold proclaimers of the gospel. Lord, I pray that while we may not today or even tomorrow see the, the 
the Pentecost-like reality that the church saw in its first days. Help us to, to really take to heart that though a lot of the beginnings of Acts is, is sensational in, in one sense, real but sensational, it is none it, it, it is no far removed, or it is, it, is, it is not so high or so big or so miracle-like that we, we can't operate in the same ways today. Lord, you've called us to be faithful witnesses that have a spiritual perspective. And I pray that as the gospel is threatened more and more, that we would grow to be more and more proclaimers of your word through your spirit. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.